0: Welcome once again to Inside the War Room. Ryan right, right here as always. Today's guest is a man that I've known for God, probably four or five years now. Always been gracious with his time, always has great insight. I'm talking about David Blackman, who is the editor of Shell Mag, uh, Shell Magazine. Shellmag.com is the website. He's a Forbes contributor. Um, he also has In the Patch Radio. We talk about all that in the show. In today's show, we talk about um, what's going on in. Iran, we talk about Venezuela, Africa, US oil industry. The ERCOT frees out everything that you'd want to hear. Stay to the end. New segment for the show, which is Ryan's recommendations. Without further ado, here's David Blackman. Well, David, I think you have made an appearance on almost all of my shows now. This you've, you've, got <laughs> working, you've you got the cycle working. You got a lot of them going on, man. It's great. <laughs> well, I try to try to get the conversation going from different perspectives. You know, Text Logas Podcast or Energy Week or or now this one and this one kind of is more of a um uh, more general allows us to talk about more general things. What, what I found is, is that some people will love you on one topic, but they don't want to hear you on something else. So hopefully this, uh, <laughs> let me hear about everything here. It's, uh, it's a little bit more broad based, but uh, it's good to have you on uh, once again, a lot to get in. Always
1: into. enjoy it, man. Always enjoy our conversations.
0: Well, you know, one of the things that, and I I think I said this on here, but if not, I'll say it again. You are, you have always been so kind with your time, uh, time, going back to the global, global interviews podcast days. Um, I was was looking back at some of those podcasts of the day. And, uh, (laughs) you know, remember we had that round table we did with you and uh, Jackie and, uh, oh gosh, I can see the guy can't name his name, but um, for the first 100 days of Trump. Anyways, so you've always been a uh, helpful, um, helpful person. And so always, always appreciate you. have your finger on the oil and gas pulse, and that's one of the things. And by the
1: way, that, that roundtable we did in January with David Ramsden Wood and, uh, mm-hmm. um, oh my gosh, and Ellen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, I think we pretty much all got it right on oil prices, didn't we? You know? <laughs> uh, back then when all the, quote, experts were predicting we're going to be in $30, 40 oil mm-hmm. prices for the rest of the year, and we all mm-hmm. said, yeah, that's that's nonsense right so anyway yeah I
0: was, you know it's funny uh, i'll link to that in the show notes for people to go check it out but i was thinking you know we we should probably maybe do a, another one of those again maybe in october kind of like a a post yeah a, a, kind of a follow-up from last year because that that they got i got a lot of good feedback on that that was a great event i uh enjoyed doing that okay yeah that was fun. Uh, so let's start with we both live here in texas we're you know, as far as Texas time goes, we're basically neighbors, but I think we're about an hour apart. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. For, for Texas, that's like right next. You no, know, that's around the uh, <laughs> And so we have been dealing with not um the the impact of the ERCOT failure back in February. <laughs> it, it's funny, you know, it's not just the 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 power outage. Um, the whole state is dealing with it from different ramifications. I went fishing down in Corpus. Uh, two weeks ago, I guess it was, and they were talking about this how the fishing is hasn't really adjusted, it has nothing to do with the power. It's just the freeze has messed up so much. Um, oh yeah,
1: the fish, the fish patterns and yeah, 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 stuff like that. So I've it's just funny. It we're fish.
0: still dealing with that in other areas. Yeah. Um, and, and you, I don't know if you've heard about this or not, but you know, there's a there's a group online that kind of makes parody uh swag that kind of mocks oil and gas or energy. They're pro oil and gas, but they just kind of take shots at it. And they okay. made a, a swag called Burkot, B R R C O T. <laughs> and uh, yeah well urcott <laughs> sent them a cease and desist letter over it you're and kidding said, no i we just had them on text One guest podcast on monday for two things one for saying the word burcott and two for the logo the logo i can maybe understand but you can't say i can't say burcott and oh, if you really? don't say burcott don't let people freeze to death right right exactly i mean do your damn jobs and people won't make fun of you so where are we at what have we learned have, okay Have they learned anything? I know we've learned a lot. So kind of break down what's going on as we sit here at the end of June 2021.
1: Well, what we learned in February and had learned again in April on the 13th and 14th when ERCOT had to send out capacity warnings. And again, uh, what was that, the second week in June when they had to do the same thing again. What we learned is is several things. First, uh, the power plants and a lot of the pipeline and oil field infrastructure needs to be winterized. And the wind turbines too. Although, of course, the wind people say, well, you know, you can't expect wind to perform when it's cold, or when it's hot. I just saw another wind expert the other day on a Bloomberg piece saying, well, you know, when it gets real hot, we don't expect the wind wind to perform anyway. So, when we really need it, wind's not there. But, but you know, none of those are winterized in the state. We have a definite lack of, of reserve capacity on the grid. There's no question about it. Yet people still continue to try to argue that point, which is crazy. Um, and ERCOT constantly, their, their computer models consistently, they're just like, they're like climate change models, which consistently overestimate the temperature rise. ERCOT's computer models consistently overestimate how much they can expect to get out of wind power on any given day. And so when, when you look at those, those Days in April and again in June when we had lack of capacity warnings and, you know, asking people to conserve energy from ERCOT, on on all those days, they had estimated they're going to get 10 to 12 megawatts uh, out of the wind industry in the state. And instead they got three, three and a half, right, because the wind stopped blowing. And they did it during, during February, too. I mean, you can just look at the charts ERCOT published. They consistently overestimated how much they were going to get out of wind on those days. And, you know, ultimately at one point, wind was generating about 3% of its capacity. Uh, and yet everyone in the news media points fingers at, at natural gas, which had lost at one point about 35% of its capacity offline. And so, so those are the things we learned. Now, uh, the the Texas legislature, uh, do you want me to go on there? Uh, The Texas legislature addressed one, one of those concerns,
0: and that is winterization. Well, well, okay. actually, before you go there, maybe break down for those who aren't familiar, who's in charge ERCOT, who is monitoring and who's supposed to be doing stuff so people kind of understand because you're kind of an expert. For those who don't know, it is a little confusing on who has a role here.
1: Well, supposedly, um, ERCOT is staffed by experts uh, on power grids, okay? And I'm sure they are. Um, but these experts on power grids uh, for the past 20 years or however long ERCOT has existed have consistently, consistently overestimated how much wind can really supply into the system. We spent $7 billion, uh, if, if everyone remembers uh, on power lines to bring this wind power that we were supposedly going to get from West Texas to the, the Houston and Dallas markets, right? Seven billion—the original cost estimate from the wind industry—that it was, was going to cost the Kres lines, is what they're called. They were going to cost one billion. Ten years later, they ended up costing seven billion. But they're there, you know, and and they're supposedly going to bring all that power in from West Texas, and they do sometimes. I guess when the wind. Uh, and weather situation is perfect, then, you know, wind does supply as, even as much as 30% of our electricity in the state on a few days every year. And they brag about it and ERCOT advertises it and yells and screams. Uh, but, but when you really need it, when it's really hot in August, when the high pressure dome sits over the North Texas, like it does pretty much every year in August, the wind stops blowing in West Texas. And so it's kind of useless to us. So we'll get two or three megawatts on those days out of wind. And that means, what that means is, oh, I'm sorry. Let's go back to ERCOT. So, Sorry. ERCOT reports into the Public Utility Commission, supposedly. So the PUC is supposed to be responsible for what happens at ERCOT. ERCOT manages the grid. These, These electricity experts manage the grid, quote. Um, and that means they're kind of responsible for, you know, when, when you have a week in June where you had 12 megawatts of power offline for maintenance, and then you had uh, Comanche Peak, one of their trains failed because they had a fire and a transformer, and three other plants went offline unexpectedly, and suddenly you had this lack of capacity. ERCOT's responsible for that. And the way they do it is they look and see, okay, this plant, this plant, this plant, this plant have applied to be offline for maintenance on these days. They look at their computer model and it says, you know, how much can we expect to get out of wind and other generating sources on those days? And that's, you know, they they approve those plants to be offline based on those expectations. So, You know, the PUC supposedly has oversight, but, uh, you know, one of the reasons all three PUC commissioners resigned in the wake of the February event was because PUC was not properly exercising its oversight. And, I mean, we should all be honest about that. It's also, uh, you know, the mismanagement of the grid is also why half the board at ERCOT resigned in the wake of that freeze event and why the CEO who was asked by the governor to resign uh, and refuse was fired. Uh, so nobody was doing their jobs and, and we all need to admit that. So that and, that's the other thing we learned in February.
0: And you, and you, the only person I heard point this out, um, and I, I won't get it wrong, but I'll set it up for you here. Before the Texas freeze, they talked about the potential for like, what was it, a minute or something? You, I remember you talking about this. Like They actually addressed the issue before the, the freeze 10%. happened. How long? 42 seconds, They 42 had a seconds. three,
1: three hour board meeting on Wednesday. That would have been the 10th, I think of February Valentine's day was Sunday, the 14th. So Wednesday mm-hmm. would have been the ninth, I guess. And 10, 11, 12, no, Wednesday was the ninth. So they had a three hour board meeting. They spent 42 seconds of a three hour board meeting at ERCOT talking about emergency preparedness. That's that's uh, not an exaggeration. It's absolutely what happened in that meeting. And that was as, you know, we had three different winter fronts blow in mm-hmm. starting on the 10th. I mean, it was the day before the first front blew in and they knew these fronts were coming. And they still chose to spend 42 seconds talking about emergency preparedness. So I guess, I mean, all you can derive from that is, the, is that the, quote, experts, uh, at ERCOT felt like, boy, they had this in the bag. It was not going to be a problem. Well, it, it was a problem.
0: Uh, so your answer there was about 44 seconds long. So that's perspective. the yeah, <laughs> perspective of how long they talked about it in that meeting, which is astonishing yeah. because me and you have been in a lot of meetings in our careers. And for something to talk about for 42 seconds, it means it is a literal non-issue because we have spent I've, I probably have droned on too long in meetings on stuff that didn't matter. I've I beat the dead horse by the time or two myself for hours on end, it feels like. So four yeah, minutes that, in a that, meeting that, is nothing. I'll give
1: you an analogy on this for people who aren't really familiar with the oil and gas business. If you go out and visit an offshore platform, like I've, I've made several trips out to the offshore. I was, you know, one of the ones I really remember the most was to Shell's Mars platform out in the deep water of the Gulf of Mexico. Every morning, Every employee working on those sites, and this is true across the industry, they have an hour-long safety meeting every morning, and they talk about safety and emergency preparedness uh, because they're so focused on preventing any accidents on these facilities. And and the onshore sites are the same way. may not last for an hour, but they go over the same stuff over and over and over again Mm -hmm. because they know that repetition is important. And um you know, so c- contrast that to the people supposedly managing our power grid, spending 42 seconds of a three hour meeting on the same kinds of subjects. It's crazy.
0: It, it's crazy and the other thing is it's not as if and this is a, something to bring up, it's not as if they spent three hours and they just they tried their best and they were wrong that, 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 that that's that that, the, that in, in American society they we have kind of negated the fact that people are just wrong even with their best effort they were too sure. hard for that. That's not what happened. This right. is there was a lack of effort, a lack of foresight, and for that they should be held accountable. And so you've kind of gone through kind of the the the, the levels of who they report to. But I know you've, you're a little bit frustrated with um, the executive branch in Texas and kind of how they've responded.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, let's let's go on up through the chain. So the Public Utility Commission consists of three commissioners, just like the Railroad Commission. But the Railroad Commissioners are elected; they're statewide elected officials the three public utility commissioners are appointees and they're appointed by the governor of Texas. Since 1994, when George W. Bush defeated Ann Richards, every governor of Texas has been a Republican. Okay, I'm a lifelong Republican. So when I talk about this, you're you're listening to a guy who has voted for Greg Abbott every time he has run for office, okay? So it's not that I hate Greg Abbott. And don't like Republicans. I'm a Republican myself, so you can blame me for this too. (laughs) Um, But yes, I'm, I'm very frustrated with the governor right now because on February 24th, in the wake of that horrible event in which 200 Texans lost their lives and 10 million Texans were left without power and a bunch of water systems around the state that had lost power were still down and people were boiling water to take showers and drink. The governor got on television, statewide televised address, and he talked about what a, what an epic failure this was on, you know, and blamed ERCOT for a lot of it and promised at the end of that speech that he would call the legislature into special sessions if the legislature failed to deal with all the problems that he had talked about in that speech. And if you go back and read the text of the speech, the governor himself, The governor admitted that we have a lack of reliable baseload capacity on this system. The governor admitted there was severe mismanagement at ERCOT. The governor talked about need to weatherize all of these facilities, the power plants, the wind turbines, all these natural gas pipeline and oil field facilities. Not the whole industry, but about 20% of it's relevant to the power grid. Okay. He promised us he would do that. And if you've been listening to what he said over the past few weeks, now, you know, what he's been doing is just trying to say, oh, well, you know, legislature fixed it all. Well, the legislature didn't fix it all. I I would argue, frankly, that the legislature really did not fix any one of those three major aspects uh, with the grid. And, uh, you know, they changed the way ERCOT People are selected, they changed, you know, they created a communications committee to make sure that uh, the natural gas infrastructure is all identified you know, as critical infrastructure like hospitals are. Uh, and the, the other thing they did in Senate Bill three was say, okay, all you plants got to winterize and all you, you know, all the relevant equipment on the grid has to be winterized. But what they did was then say, okay, PUC, you're going to write the regulations requiring the winterization. And what I would argue is that uh, the PUC has been so dominated uh, over the past decade because we had a very similar event in 2011 and the exact same thing happened. The legislature did not take action to actually, by statute, mandate the winterization and left it up to the PUC. And the PUC is historically very dominated by power generators, big corporate power generators and other interests on the grid who don't want anything to change and don't want to invest the capital dollars and it's very expensive to winterize their facilities. And so I think the very predictable outcome of this regulatory exercise that the PUC is going to go through is that they're going to write regulations kind of like they did in 2011 that don't really have any teeth. And we're still not going to get Texas consumers and, and people living here are still not going to get the protection they need um, on the grid to keep it stable during these major weather events. So I'm very frustrated with the governor about this. He needs to call a special session. Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick has a, an op-ed in the morning news, Dallas Morning News, today, the day we're recording this, saying the governor needs to call a special session on the grid and listing these exact issues, okay, that I've been talking about for four months in my columns. And and he's not doing that just for fun, okay? He's doing that because he recognizes the legislature didn't do its job in the regular session.
0: Okay, so go back to me a minute ago. I used to be a member of the Republican Party. I'm now <laughs> the Libertarian Party. <laughs> yeah, well, there's a lot of reasons for that. And I always say this to people like, so you believe, like, okay, not all libertarians, think. but part of my frustration um, with the conservatives, uh, the Republicans, if you were, was it seemed like a, and I'm, not about, I'm not talking about you, David, specifically talking about the, the politicals. Um, that they didn't actually believe a lot of what they espoused, and so that kind of got me um, frustrated with the um, with the party and, and, and part part of the reason I left. But anyways, one of the I things. They, <laughs> I, yes, I know. I know. Uh, one of the things that I've been saying, and. I, I this is the libertarian side of me coming out. That's so why I, I preps this way. Is that until these power companies are responsible to the end user, it's going to be hard to get change. Now, it, it, when I hear you talk about this, you're saying, "Well, the the governor appoints these people who are in charge of ERCOT, which means that they're not responsible to me and you." And so, That's right. I, I'm not. I don't. I also am not saying that we should overnight change everything to the report to the end user because that would be a problematic as, as well. Yes. Um, But what is a reasonable step to where someone can be held accountable? Because right now you have Abbott who What's he up in 2022 or 2024. What's he up again?
1: Next year, every statewide elected official. So you have him up in 2022.
0: You might can get him somewhat accountable, but if he loses, then whoever comes in will appoint new people. So they're not really being held accountable in the same way. I mean, right but so how what is what are some solutions to where people who did lose um uh, it's not only people we had people that lost their lives which is the worst in the spectrum but you have a lot of home damage and insurance costs oh and God. all this stuff that will last for for months and months and months or years ahead um and, and there's no real way no real outlet for people to say okay we're going to hold these politicians except for they have to vote on this issue next year, and there's a lot of issues that will come up between now and next year. So give me some potential um, solutions. Is it just that the government upholds his word, or how do we prevent this in the future? Because I'm, I, I hear well, what you're saying, and I agree that we should maybe do some stuff legislatively. but at the end of the day, we go back to the same problem, which is these appointed officials, you can't hold them accountable.
1: Well, I think, um, but I, I, I would argue that they were held accountable. I mean, they all resigned. Everybody on the PUC resigned. Uh, you know, the governor was going to fire them all if they didn't resign. Um, So they've all been replaced. That's that's how you hold politicians, you know, and public officials accountable. At ERCOT, you know, half the board resigned. Uh, A lot of them were just because they were from out of state. I think a lot of people were shocked to learn that we had this entity, which is a weird entity to begin Mm -hmm. with. It's a 501C4 organization, this, you know, kind of private, I mean, what what do we do in having a, a a private entity like that managing our power grid? Why isn't it a state agency doing that? I mean, I I have a problem with the whole structure of ERCOT to begin <laughs> with. Not that I'm a big believer in big government, sure. But this is the public's grid, okay? This is the grid that that you know, it was over eighty percent of the state of Texas. Mm-hmm. And the public's grid ought to be directly accountable to the public. And that means it should be state officials. So, yeah, I have a concern that ERCOT that is this step removed from that line of accountability. But, you know, Bill Magnus, the CEO, was fired. So he was held accountable. Um, you know, who wasn't held accountable? Well, you know, the lobbyists for, for all these uh, entities on the grid, you know, are not ever going to be held accountable. Uh, for, for the stuff they, they tell mm. to members of the legislature. Right. And I was in the lobby for the oil and gas industry in 2011 in the wake of that event. And, and went to a lot of the hearings and went to a lot of the PUC hearings and saw the kind of nonsense that some of these interests in the grid mm. were telling members of the legislature and the PUC. And it, it utter, complete nonsense just to you know, try to prevent any change in the system that is failing us more and more every year. Okay, so those people will not be held accountable. Uh, The legislators can only be held accountable by the voters. Now, Senate Bill 3 was a good bill when it came out of the Senate, and it was a bipartisan bill that was passed overwhelmingly in the Senate. There were very few people against that bill. And it had provisions, very effective, strong provisions that would have mandated the building of additional Base load capacity on the grid, rather than leaving it up to the system that has failed us so miserably for the last decade. Um, that was all stripped out in the dark of night by the members of the, uh, the House State Affairs Committee, uh, chaired by Chris Patty, a Republican from Marshall. Uh, dead of night, all that stuff came out of it. That's, you know, so the, the committee's version went to the floor and it was passed. It was stripped out, you know, stripped down version. And the Senate, having only 24 hours left in the session, had a choice between either passing the House version again or just letting the whole thing die, right? So they they voted in favor of the House version, as they should have, because there are a few good things in, in Senate Bill 3. And so those people on that committee that stripped out that language, that would have really been very helpful to improve the situation in the grid, they're not going to be held accountable. And anyone who's been engaged in the Texas lobby, I was part of the Texas lobby for 20 years. You know, you can imagine the kinds of pressures that those members of the legislature were being put under from certain interests on the power grid that led to that action in the dead of night. Right. Um, So none of those people are gonna be held accountable either. And I, I honestly, I, you know, I don't know of any, easy way to do that uh other than for the the management at these big corporations to suddenly you know uh, find jesus and uh hire people who are willing to deal with the legislature and the puc honestly
0: (laughs) you you leave us with such hope (laughs) yeah (laughs) okay let's uh anything else on that before we move on to oil and gas stuff
1: yeah let let me just say that the governor has it in his power to fix all this and he should keep his promise that he made on February 24th. And anyone who watches this ought to call his office and demand he do so. The Lieutenant Governor now is demanding it. Uh, I think you're gonna see a growing chorus along those lines in the weeks to come as Republicans running for reelection, wake up to the reality that this is their grid. There are no Democrat fingerprints on the Texas grid. This is all a Republican deal. So if we have another major disaster between now and next election day, you know, all the fingers are going to get pointed at these Republicans because they had a chance to right. deal with all this and they didn't do it.
0: Any chance Abbott doesn't run and goes for president? Or do you think he would run and still <laughs> go president? No? Well, let me tell no, you what. Yeah, I hear
1: that. But look, he's he's so far behind Ron DeSantis. I mean, <laughs> look, he's he's he had a chance. You know, the governor had an opportunity to be really decisive and really yeah. aggressive uh, during the whole COVID thing. hmm Uh, And Ron DeSantis was a month ahead of him every step of the way. Mm -hmm. And so Ron DeSantis is the obvious potential nominee for for the Republicans in 2024, because I don't think Trump's going to run. And, um, you know, Abbott has no chance, so he'd be wasting his time. I hope he doesn't do that. He's been overall not a bad governor, you know, Mm -hmm. and I would vote for him again, you know, unless the grid falls apart between now and then. I may have to vote for a damn libertarian.
0: Hey! Whoa! 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 I must say I can't get your. I was going to take get your vote, David. Come on
1: now. Well, so I'd be a libertarian too if I thought they could ever win anything. But you know oh, the problem yeah. with libertarians. Let's just take ten seconds on this. Yeah. The problem with libertarians is their whole line is telling people what they can't do for them, what government can't do for them, and that's not how you get elected in this country. So.
0: I, no, I, I agree, and, and I think. What you're seeing now, at least in the Mises caucus, the libertarian, is um, there is an acknowledgement that they have to reframe some of the issues. So, like I said a minute ago, whatever my solution to just about any major problem, I would not implement it overnight because that's disastrous. Um, right. And so you're starting to see libertarians who are, are trying to be thoughtful and saying, OK, well, we we." we really want to end up over here, but we need to go there. And if you follow the Democrats and the progressives, they're very good about that. Like they want this object that's way away. And then they just slowly, slowly, boom, boom, boom. And you wake up one day and go, Oh my gosh, like they've gotten, <laughs> they've made a lot of ground on us over here, you know? And yeah. so libertarians, if they would ever figure out how to do stuff. And the, and the final thing is, is libertarians. And I think they're focused on this, should focus on the small local elections where they, sh- where they can actually look at some of their policies and test some of that stuff out. So, um,
1: yeah, and stop stop running crazy people for president. Well that would be okay, a yes,
0: good start. Yes. That's that that's a yes. <laughs> like yes, Gary Johnson. Yes, Gary Johnson. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, 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 yes. uh, Agreed. Agreed. Um listen, we've got our own problems. Okay. <laughs> like, I, like I always say, the worst of the Republicans, and the Democrats, it's also the libertarians. So <laughs> yeah. we're we're not immune from that either. Um, okay, let's talk about oil and gas. Um I don't have the prices pulled up, but I think WTI is what about 73 last week Yeah, year, it was you? up this
1: morning. It was up over 73 again.
0: Yeah, so it's 73. Natural gas is $3.78, uh, which is basically, I mean, that, that's like harder yeah. to you know, It's crazy to see it up like that. Uh, What are your thoughts on the prices? Um, I know there's a big debate about how much storage we actually have for oil and the prices are being overly impacted by inflation. Um, U.S. production will never catch up. Uh, Ellen and I had a story yesterday we covered. uh, It's from the Dallas Fed survey that said that one out of – this is from a CEO of a local operator – said that one out of every 400 banks is only willing to offer fresh capital. I mean, there's a lot to unpack here. What's going on with prices, the U.S. industry, wherever you want to start at, we'll go from?
1: Well, so I I think what everyone needs to understand about oil is, is, well, there's two things. Number one, uh, the price is being propped up by the OPEC plus agreement, which is keeping currently about five and a half million barrels of potential supply off of the market in order to prop up the price. Okay, and as long as OPEC plus does that, then the pressures on the price uh, overall globally are going to be for it to keep going up. And Goldman Sachs, uh, looking at that situation, thinks it's going to be $80 by the end of summer. I think they're probably right. Um, and then, you know, now you've got bank of America and others saying we're going to have hundred dollar oil next year. So that's in the near term. Uh, and, and it's all driven by the fact that global demand is, is recovering much more rapidly than anyone predicted from the COVID pandemic. Well, anyone, but me predicted, uh, I've been saying that would happen since last October. OK, you know, I mean, I'm not the only one, but but uh, small most have been trying to tell everybody that um, would be the case. And so the, that's in the near term. So over the next year and a half, as long as OPEC Plus holds together, all prices are going to go up and gasoline prices will go up with them, of course. Um, then when you look at, at years beyond 2022, the other thing everyone needs to understand is we have had a structural enormous underinvestment in the discovery uh, and production of new oil reserves around the world. Uh, One estimate I saw, I think it was Reistad Energy, uh, estimated that uh, this underinvestment totals up to about $350 billion in lack of investment since 2014, since the, the first big price bust hit in 2014. So what that means is that the finding of new reserve and producing capacity has not kept up with the pace of rising demand globally, uh, over that period of years. And it's a, it's a very big deficit that can't be made up, um, in anything less than a decade. And at the same time as all that's been happening, you've had all these pressures from the radical environmental community and now the Biden administration and other global governments. To depress investment in oil and gas, and ESG investors are also a part of that, um, and and depress, you know, investment in the finding of new reserve. What that's going to mean starting in 2023, and it won't matter what OPEC Plus does by then, unless we have another pandemic. Um, starting in 23, I mean, you know, we may have $150, $200 oil because you're going to have a structural deficit in supply. And so the price is going to go way up and that's almost just baked into the cake at this point. And all these, and what I want your, your viewers to remember is that you and I told them this here in June 29th, 2021 <laughs> and two years from now, what they need to, to, to look at the people they need to look at is the ESG investor community and the radical environmentalists who started promising you 10 years ago that, Oh, well, you know, Electric vehicles and wind and solar can make up for all that. Well, they can't, okay? They can't, and they won't be able to do that in 2023. They won't be able to do it in 2033 or 2043. And we're going to need oil for a long, long time, and people need to figure that out. Unfortunately, the public is so ignorant about all of this and so propagandized by our news media and education system that you won't figure it out until there's a major crisis, and then it's too late. Well, we're going to have a major crisis, uh, I would say, probably around 2024, 2025, when we're just not going to have enough oil to go around. And that's because of what's been happening since 2024, not been happening since 2024, and all the lies you've been told by the climate change alarmists. And um, so bookmark this and refer back to it in a couple of years. We're going to
0: to put it out there for everyone. Okay, let's unpack Let's unpack a few things there. Um let's go back to um the OPEC plus. So um my understanding is I think OPEC plus to your point, uh, the prices are high because they they have about what I think are three, four million barrels of spare capacity they could put on the market right now that they haven't put on. Um uh,
1: five and a half is what they claim. Uh,
0: five, five, five okay, five and a half. Right. Yeah, depending on who you believe. But yeah, but yeah, three to four, five and a half, maybe I think the official number is like upwards of six, but mm-hmm. I don't know. But we'll see. Uh four to six, we'll call it. Um, if I were them, I'm curious your thoughts on that. If I were them, if I, if I were advising them right now, uh, I take what you said about 2023 off the side for a second. Um, would it be a shrewd move right now as prices are climbing up to dump that four to six million barrels on the market, put the price back down and really, really put a, I don't want to say a death blow to the shell industry, but a really a kick to the knee to, cause you're going to see as prices go up, there will be dollars coming back to the industry, but if the prices, if you had a sudden price collapse again, would that, I mean, what would do to the industry and, and could we see OPEC Plus do that?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, they could try that. They've done it twice. Uh, they did it in 2014. They did it again last March. Um, you know, they could do that at any time. And that's, I've, I've written about that many times, you know, you, you're in the shale business mm-hmm. and 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 producers in this country have been remarkably disciplined this year and not. <laughs> over drilling. Right. Okay. But you still have this business model in the shell business that is wholly reliant on the OPEC plus deal holding together in order to be profitable. You do. I talked to CEO last week who says, well, he's creating this new kind of company and I won't say who it is and creating this new business model that's going to be profitable and and yeah, it's gonna be profitable as long as OPEC plus holds together and as long as prices are above $50. But if OPEC plus falls apart, price goes back down to 30, nobody's profitable, I don't care what they say. Um, so yeah, it's a dangerous situation and, and OPEC plus could do it to us anytime. I, you know, they, they have competing priorities though. They, they All these countries really need this revenue and they need these stronger prices. And the Saudis are no exception. The Saudis may need higher prices more than anyone, considering the size of their social welfare state. And uh, so, uh, you know, it's just this constant thing. Every month they meet, they're meeting this week, you know, and everybody's eyes are turned to them. What are they going to do? But as long as they hold it together, you know, everybody's
0: okay. I, I've been saying since December, I thought this was the best thing that OPEC could have done, which was meet every month, because you put a, a pressure on U.S. investment going to shell because you're like, okay, well, dang, OPEC's meeting in a month. I mean, obviously, they could have had special meetings at any point in the past they wanted to, but they had the two big meetings. But now it's like, well, huh, okay, what's OPEC going to do in a month? And a few tweets or a few press releases 15 days out. You, you constantly keep this pressure where you yeah. investors are looking at OPEC going, oof do we want to invest in shell? Cause at any moment they could change their mind. And of course they go and they have the drama. The Russians right. are mad and the Iranians are bad. And so I think it's been a really shrewd move regardless. If they put the extra barrels on just from the outside perspective going, "Dang, they're meeting again. Yep. <laughs> oh. Exactly.
1: You know, um, it gives them a lot of power because I mean, every time the Russian minister last week said, well, you know, we kind of like to raise our own production in Russia above our, our quotas and the market dropped. You know, 50 cents just within a few minutes of him saying that. So they, it's like Elon Musk talking about Dogecoin. <laughs> you know, every time he says something, Dogecoin right. goes up or down. Oh, yeah. You know? and so anyway, it
0: so you mean a lot of power. Yeah. You mentioned people needing higher prices. Okay. So let's talk about that. Um, cause I think that that gets missed. You look at, um, like Nigeria, they need like, I think their break even is like 140. Right. Like crazy. You know, so there is an incentive to let the price go higher, is the other side of the spectrum. What are your thoughts on, um, let's take two things. One, uh, Venezuela and Iran, um, who have been, their oil industry has not been what it was historically. Can they get back? I know the Biden administration and the Canadians and the EU sent some kind of note saying that there is a pathway for Venezuela to come back to the to the market, not, not be the black market. We'll, we'll see what that means. I'm curious your thoughts on that. But two, Africa as a whole, I know there's a big push on uh, as, uh, sub-Saharan Africa to kind of get their act together and to start drilling and to maybe even join OPEC. So two separate issues, but they do impact some of these things that you're talking about as we move forward. What are your thoughts on them?
1: Sure. You know, some of the biggest resources in the world are in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and, and so those are places where, you know, there's potential to start making up this structural deficit that we have. Um, and in, you know, off, offshore uh, northern South America to uh, Guyana and Suriname. Um, but, you know, Venezuela, I mean, the big problem with Venezuela is is it's run by a, a dictator, basically a despotic dictator who, you know, has run all the private companies out of there and has made his country uh, a desert of investment. No one wants to to do business with his government. So, I mean, as long as Maduro, uh, the government is in power in Venezuela, its industry is going to be depressed and just going to keep getting worse and worse and worse. Um, um, Who else did you ask about? I'm sorry. Uh, You know, the sub-Saharan Africa. I mean, you know, I I mean, those countries have always had government governance issues and problems, Mm -hmm. you know, with revolutions constantly going on. You have a similar situation in Libya and then Iran It's just, you know, the, the whole thing depends on, uh, reaching another nuclear deal with the Biden administration, which, you know, really wants to do it, uh, for whatever reason, I really can't understand the, the almost religious fervor Biden and Obama had with doing these deals with Iran. Uh, but when they do, and whenever they get that completed, which they will, Iran can potentially put another million, two million barrels onto the market Mm -hmm. and they will, um, I just you know it's a mystery to me, and and I, I don't understand all all the geopolitic, geopolitics of that, but but why our government cares whether or not Iran is able to export their oil is is beyond my comprehension.
0: So yeah, let me, yeah, let's talk about that because one of the things, I don't know if we talked about this before. Um, so I'm curious your thoughts. If you look at what China's doing in the Middle East, they are definitely putting they are going all in, it feels like with the Saudis, the mm-hmm. Iranian deal. Um, at the same time, the U.S.'s foreign policy in the Middle East is very much, um, you know, well, we're, we're helping these guys and we're fighting these guys. And let's just set aside maybe what we, th- what we think about that. And we're bombing the China- these guys. Yeah, we're bombing these guys. Is the Chinese strategy actually better in the Middle East? Because they're pretty much like, whatever, we're going to work with whomever. And the U.S. is we're going to work with you, we're going to bomb you, and we're not going to work with you, and we're going to support you. Uh, And then when you actually read between the lines, it's not exactly clear that we were right right on some of those issues. But um, will the U.S. find itself in a position that if we're not careful, we're going to alienate too many people in the Middle East?
1: Sure, of course. And, yeah, yeah, the Chinese process is much better. Uh, China has the advantage. Yesterday they were celebrating the 100th anniversary of the Communist Party in China. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and the Communist Party has been in power for over half a century now in China. And so China has the advantage of being able to, to engage in long term planning on all of these things and of, of being able to force its population to go along with whatever the plan is. Whereas in the United States, you know, we change administrations every four to eight years. And if you change parties, when you do that, then you have a complete change in direction uh, vis-a-vis Middle East policy. You know, the Democrats hate Israel. The Republicans want to be Israel's ally. Wow. Uh, Saudi Arabia, Trump made fantastic, great inroads with Saudi Arabia that this administration is probably going to work to destroy, just like it's trying to destroy the, the Abraham Accords. You know, actual peace in the Middle East uh, was President Trump's goal, and yes, I was a big fan of, of President Trump's policy towards the Middle East, because you know his policies led to us not getting involved in all these wars and winding them down. Whereas the policies of this administration are going to go right back to winding them back up, and and creating more and more enemies in the Middle East, which is what the Obama and the Bush administrations did as well. So we had a four-year uh, respite on all of that. And peace was breaking out all over. And then, then we changed presidencies and now the war machine's back in power. And we're, we're bombing Syria, uh, the border between Syria and Iran. We're bombing some faction of rebels that nobody even knows who they are for, for reasons that nobody can really explain. Yeah. So I hate this policy. I hate the United States being a constantly in mm-hmm. armed conflicts in the Middle East and engaged in those conflicts. And and so the irony of that bombing run, by the way, is that supposedly the rebels we were bombing were aligned with Iran. Mm-hmm. The country, the Biden administration, by the way, is trying to negotiate a nuclear arms agreement with. Them. Mm-hmm. Now yeah. think about that. <laughs> what kind of sense does any of that make? It's insanity. Yeah. And 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 the United States has been responsible for, for an incredible amount of of conflict and death in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And you know, we need to stop doing that at some point.
0: Yeah. You know, uh, I don't want to devolve into all of the. Yeah, no, 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 no. It doesn't bother me. Any. I don't want to put you in a bad spot. <laughs> um, uh, but they're, they're so complicated to follow. But one of the things I'd point out to people was because uh, it was easy. It was an easy uh, thing to show um, it during Trump's uh, State of the Union. He had um, a widow from a Navy SEAL there and her husband died in Yemen. And what I would just ask people, I'd say, what are we doing in Yemen?
1: <laughs> you got and, me, man.
0: Right? And, and, and everyone goes, well, you know, we're we're doing something. I was like, I'm just saying this in the Union, President Trump, I'm not trying to disparage the man. I'm not trying to say anything. I'm just using this as an analogy to say, right. before we start saying we are continue these, these wars or we're pro-bombing or whatever, explain to me why we have a Navy SEAL losing his life in Yemen. And if you can explain it to me, we can have a conversation. But if you can't, then let's back off all of the bomb talk because.
1: And no one can explain it to you.
0: No one can. <laughs> it's re- you start to think about it. It's really weird. It's really sad. Here's a man who gave up his life, um, and it, the, the Yemen people saw. So but it, that to, to, it just illustrates the point very well. And I'm not trying to pick on Trump or Biden or anything. It's just it's just an easy illustration to go. We can't even explain why this man. Died in a country that we're really not. We're, we're not even fighting the people of Yemen. We're helping the Saudis. We were so. Anyways, it's it's a convoluted mess, and it, it is sad and it is frustrating. Um, let's get back to. It. <laughs> um, what are your thoughts on the the Biden administration? How much impact has the, the, the permit ban or whatever you'll call it on the federal leases, how much has that actually had on the oil and gas industry versus perception? Um, will they overturn it in time if it hasn't had a impact? What are your, What's your read on that?
1: Yeah, I, I, I don't think it's had any real impact other than maybe moving a few drilling rigs out of New Mexico to West Texas to drill for oil in the Permian Basin. Um, yet, mm-hmm. if it becomes a four-year deal, well, then that's going to have an impact. Um, You know, and and because companies did stock up on leases uh, during the last two years of of the Trump administration. Uh, So, you know, there's a lot of drilling, a lot of potential uh, drilling they can do. To me, what's more important is what the the administration is going to do administratively. Because there's all kinds of way they can they can slow up the permitting process. Yeah. You know, and you, yeah, I mean, all these wells have to be permitted, right? You have to get a permit from the BLM to drill on federal lands. And if it starts taking a year to get that permit instead of a month, well, then that's going to be a, a very significant impact on a lot of And companies. they
0: talked about raising the royalty as well, I believe, right?
1: Yeah, they want to raise the royalty. I have to be honest with you, though. I think, you know, look, uh, 12.5% royalty. Is what it is in mo- on most federal lands onshore, mm-hmm. uh, and there's a few where it's 16.67. Well, that was established way back in the 80s, mm-hmm. okay? When the re- average royalty rate on fee lands, right on your ranch or mm-hmm. or whatever, was also 12.5%. Well, now the prevailing royalty rate on private lands is 25%, and it's even higher than that mm-hmm. in some instances. So, so why should the federal government? Uh, still be stuck collecting 12.5% based on a royalty rate that's half a century old. So I, I don't really, you know, as a philosophical matter, have a problem with raising the royalty rate. Will that discourage drilling sure. on federal lands to some extent? Probably. Maybe but so. if the resource is good enough, it won't. You know, you'll yeah, still be able to be profitable.
0: Right. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. that that would be my point as well, as that whether or not it should raise or not, it just might have an impact because... Some of the some of the land they were drilling potentially could have been drilled because you're you're getting that reduction in the royalty, and a like that's not really worth it. So Man,
1: I'm not making any friends anywhere in this interview, am I? You're making friends. me and you we're agreeing all the time. I don't know. I <laughs> well, have all the oil and gas people mad at me too now.
0: Well, you know, Dave, but see, here's the thing. Here's the thing, and this is um, part of the reason I like this show is because we get to talk about principles. Right. and so yeah. One of the things that I say I always tell. Um uh, when you talk about people will talk to me about the China stuff with the Bush china foundation and and I, and I they'll, they'll say um you know oh my gosh you know China's doing this and we got to respond this way I'm like, hold on do you believe that communism works because if you do then let's just go whole hog again because <laughs> like it, it, I, and I kind of use that analogy just to kind of set the conversation because we look at things and to your point about the raising the royalty if it's a fair market rate um, and you believe that the government should own land and collect a royalty, then there's no reason the government shouldn't get a fair market rate for the royalty. Like that's a, that's a principle that if me and you might disagree on the federal land or whatever, but you're, you're, the logic is sound there. It's not a talking point, and that's something we have to get back to in this country: is what are our principles? Yeah. What do we actually believe? Because so often we get tugged right or left because we don't actually have a principle. We're just like, oh, well, Biden said this, and therefore I'm a, I'm a liberal, and so I go with Biden. Or Trump said this, I'm a Republican. It's, what do you actually believe? And so I don't have a problem with arguing principles over people because at least it's a consistent thing that you're going to hold from administration right. to administration. And we've really lost that in this country.
1: We have. Yes, we certainly have.
0: But – Anyways, to your point, um, yeah, they, they could add more paperwork, make the process more uh, oh, yeah. okay. more onerous. But what about the incentivization that we, we were seeing hearing from the oil and gas industry in the US that they're having a hard time getting money? What's your reading infrastructure bill? Will that poor will that, will that impact um oil and gas companies' ability to get money because money will be going towards these large infrastructure projects? And generally, what is your read on the bill as it sits right now?
1: yeah i mean it certainly won't help the oil and gas industry um it you know it's a, a big part of it is big giveaways to wind and solar again you know even more subsidies for wind solar and electric vehicles because they're not competitive in the marketplace despite all of the propaganda you see um so you know i mean to that extent and, and it would you know offer preferences for investment in those industries and because that's what this administration is trying to incent and And so as just a matter of principle, I mean, we have used the tax code in this country for well over a century to incent the priorities of the federal government. And that's this administration's priority. So uh, the infrastructure bill, there's nothing in it for the oil and gas business, nothing that's going to, you know, help in any way and and a lot that'll hurt. Um, And that's the way it is. You know, I mean, elections have consequences.
0: What about the bill? Um, is there parts of the bill that you do like? I know you have been in favor historically of no. uh, raising the gas tax. None.
1: No. <laughs> oh, is it the gas tax in there? Raising no, 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 no. no. I was just
0: saying, like, I know, I, 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 was, I was just going to say that. I know that historically you have been in favor of some infrastructure bills, like raising the gas tax or repairing bridges, obviously stuff like that. So I just didn't know if it had some elements that you've seen I mean, that you. It, I'll be honest with
1: you. I, I think it's a travesty, uh, and and it's going to be an even bigger travesty because a bunch of Republicans are going to vote for it. Uh, knowingly, knowing that, uh, it, it only gets passed if, if the overall budget gets passed through the reconciliation process. And that's another $6 trillion, by the way, it just filled with all of the Democrats Mm -hmm. left wing priorities. Um, so, you know, no, I don't, I don't like a word in that bill. And I think it should be soundly rejected by anybody with a functioning synapses in their cranium. Well,
0: you're talking about people in D.C. Come on, David. Don't 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 expect too much. Um, How long do you think the Biden administration has to get this bill done before um, midterm jitters um, may people shy away?
1: I think they got until September. It's just like the first year of the Obama administration. They had to get Obamacare done by that by by September, by the time uh, any of these members of Congress go back for an extended break and have to be bombarded by their constituencies for all the insane things they're doing in Washington. So uh, whatever doesn't get passed, I assume they're going to take an August break. Um, So whatever doesn't get passed before then is not going to pass. And I think uh, if the budget bill this omnibus $6 trillion bill, they want to ram through on a 50 person vote in the Senate, isn't passed before they go back for August recess, then it's not going to pass because, for the simple reason that Kirsten Sinema, the senator from Arizona, and Joe Manchin, the Democrat senator from West Virginia, are going to go back to their states and get bombarded by their constituencies for, but for for all the stupid things they're doing. Uh, so, you lose two Democrat votes, you got to pick up two Republicans somewhere, and you know there's Mitt Romney, but whoever that second Republican is is still kind of up in the air. So. I think they got a big problem if they don't get it done by August.
0: I love how you just casually throw out, oh, there's Mitt Romney.
1: Well, you know, Mitt Romney's a Democrat.
0: Oh, oh, I know. I know. know. It's just, it's just, yeah, well said. Most people don't appreciate that. I I was on a conversation, I don't know, a few months ago, and someone's like, you know, I like Mitt Romney. He really plays it down the middle. I'm like, yeah, okay.
1: (laughs) Okay, good.
0: Okay. So, okay, Mr. Plattman, I think we've kept you. Uh, long enough. This has been uh, enjoyable oh, as man, always. I'm
1: just getting started here. <laughs> I was, who haven't I made mad yet? Okay.
0: <laughs> well, you've got the libertarians. You got the governor. Yeah. The Democrats. Um, Republicans. I got foreign Democrats, policy guys. The, milita- the military. Oh, you got a lobby. Guys, the military the industrial guys. complex. Yeah, that's that's a lobby there. Uh, you've got. Yeah, the, you that's you got right. Of- I
1: even got the military industrial complex. That's awesome.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. So shalemag.com is where we'll link to in the show notes. And you you guys put out a lot of stuff. Why don't you maybe just real quick for people who aren't familiar with Shell Mag, uh, and I'll link to your Forbes piece with, um, that you published, yeah. I believe, today or yesterday about the uh, Lieutenant Governor. Uh, but show Mag, uh, what are you guys putting out there?
1: Oh gosh, uh, we just, you know, we, we it's a bi-monthly magazine. We have an active blog. Um, the website changes every day. There's new content. I mean, we cover the whole oil and gas industry. Um, and, uh, I think we do a better job of it every month, you know, and, uh, it's really, it's really, a, an outstanding publication and I'm not taking credit for that. I'm, I'm quote the editor, mm-hmm. but I really don't do have all that much to do with the quality of the product. And I, I just think it's an excellent, an excellent source of information for anyone who's interested in the oil and gas business.
0: And I owe you a congratulations. I don't think I talked. I just realized pull up the website here. You you're on a syndicated talk show now. Congratulations. Yeah, on that. Um yeah, we, our radio program, I'm sorry,
1: me. I should have mentioned yeah. that. And the oil patch radio show uh is a once weekly, hour-long uh radio program that we also podcast, and now it's part of the, the Salem Radio Network and it's being picked up nationally uh, by, by affiliates. There's, uh, I think 3,500 affiliates. I mean, obviously they're not all picking it up, right. but more and more every week. And, uh, and we've been statewide for three years and, uh, in Texas. So, you know, now we're going kind of going nationally and, and increasing that footprint. And, uh, and, you know, I'm as bombastic on that show as I was here today.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know, a little, I'll give a little background before let you go here. You know, David and I were actually hosting a podcast together and we got about three episodes in and someone sent David a letter and said, No, it's too much. It's too yeah, much. No, my clients, yeah. <laughs> These two guys can only come together every so <laughs>
1: often. It's too much. Oh, that was so much fun too. I, I regret that. But oh
0: no well. No, it's it it was just it was fun, but it's uh I'm glad to see that your show has taken off. And I guess I haven't spoken to you since I saw that. It's been what, a few months ago since that news came out? Uh, Just about, about six weeks ago. Six yeah. weeks ago. And, okay.
1: uh, it, you know, it's a big deal for us. And, yes. Uh,
0: it's a great deal. Awesome. Yeah, it's
1: it's really helping with advertisers and things like that. So it's, awesome. it's good.
0: Well, David, thank you again. We'll link to all of this in the show notes for the listeners and hopefully get you on again in the future.
1: Absolutely, man. Have a
0: good week. Thanks again, David, for coming on. Always enjoy having you. And now for my recommendation, which is the book, The Dragon's Gift. The Dragon's Gift. If you're trying to understand China's aid to Africa and how it all works, how it all ties together, this book does a great job of dispelling the myths, talking about what's going on. Also, you can go listen to Inside the War Room episode. I don't know what it was, but Eric Olander talks about this as well. We'll link to that in the show notes. You can find all this in the show notes or at rionswarroom.com, rionswarroom.com. We'll talk to you next time.